Hello, welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast, a podcast by whoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, do- joined, joined even by George Ellick and Dr. Jonathan Wilson <laughs> to preview game week three of the Premier League season. We're going to look today at Newcastle against Liverpool, Brighton against West Ham, and then we're going to do a new feature, Team in Focus. We're going to look at Brentford and their amazing start without Ivan Tony. George, I'll start with you. You okay? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very well. Looking forward to the Villas European adventure tonight. Away at Hibs. Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan, are you, are you okay? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're okay? Yep, yep. Same, same, same answer as when George just asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I'm still I, was, okay. I wasn't really listening to that bit, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we should point out that Jonathan hasn't asked to be called Dr. Jonathan Wilson. That's just a decision that's been made by me. Maybe a quick explainer, Jonathan, a quick explainer for people who may not have seen, who don't follow you on social media. Uh, the University of Sunderland gave me an honorary doctorate this summer, which was a very humbling uh, moment. I was very touched. Um, there was, um, I think, which World Cup would it be? 1938, hmm. uh, Hungary against Dutch East Indies. The two captains, uh, the Hungarian captain was nicknamed Doctor, although he was actually a qualified lawyer and not a doctor at all, whereas the Dutch East Indies captain was a medical doctor. I mean, what's this? Who, who's this country that you're saying? Is that a real country? Who, who's the Dutch that? East Indies. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's no. uh, what's now Indonesia. I Never thought, I thought you were asking if Hungary was a, was a real country. <laughs> no, no, I've heard of, I've heard of, given I've heard of, I've heard given of Hungary. that would have been so a, you know, a real the, show. The, um, the only player to play for both Indonesia and the Dutch East Indies was the goalkeeper from that game whose name escapes me for now, but he was famous for carrying quite a big doll. So, like, I mean, you can't see that now because it's so big, it's too big for the screen. But maybe, like, a two-foot-high doll he would carry around with him during games, put them, put them in the back of his goal. I'm Hungarian, so between us, we've got a You're Half of, Hungarian, George. Half. Well, yeah, yeah. but, you know, that, that's enough, isn't it? So that's like saying I'm not English, because I'm half English. You're half English, half Hungarian. Correct. Yeah. yeah, there we go. There we go. Glad we've solved, Glad we've solved that. Shall we, have, shall, we, shall we have a look at uh, Newcastle against Liverpool? And Jonathan, a bit of a bit of a surprise signing last week with Liverpool signing Endo from Stuttgart. Got to be honest, not a player I'm hugely familiar with. What did you think of that signing, given that they'd made quite blatant players for Caicedo and Lavia? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was at that opening game of the season, uh, Chelsea-Liverpool, and both teams, I felt, were really short of a play at the back of midfield. Um, it's sort of very modern Chelsea that when Liverpool, when they're both in for two of them, you think one will get one and one will get the other. It's very modern Chelsea. They end up with both. Um, like I said, I had an awful debut for Chelsea uh, really against did. West Ham on Sunday. Um, I mean, even, even before giving away the penalty, but you, you know, in time, yeah, Caicedo and Fernandez should be a, a brilliant pairing at the back of midfield. Um, I mean, Caicedo, I was, I was looking this up earlier. I think I think he averaged 4.2 regains per game last season. Pass completion rate of 80, 87%, I think it was. It's definitely high 80s. Um, so you think that alongside Fernandez, whose capacity to find space to... I mean, his pass completion rate, I think, is, is almost 90% in his time at Chelsea, which which is incredible. Yeah, the one doubt about Caicedo would be uh, he hasn't done it in the Champions League yet in the way that... Um, Fernandez had, but, but yeah, you could see why Liverpool were desperate to get either him or Lavia. Lavia obviously slightly younger, but his his ball regain stats last season were very good as well, and his pass completion rate. I was really surprised. He's, a, he's by. A more of an all rounder, I'd say. Lavia. I think oh, no, actually, their stats were pretty similar. Um, okay. if, if you're comparing them to Fernandez and and um, McAllister, if you sort of think of a modern midfield, a modern three man midfield has three components. You've got 
the the deepest lying one. You've got the the most creative one, and you've got the player who links them. And I think look, I'm purely stats wise. I think if you look at Fernandez and McAllister, you'd say they're both that linking player. Um, obviously, McAllister, his goals output is is great. As he's maybe slightly more towards the creative side, and Fernandez slightly more to to the defensive side. But Lavi is much more on the defensive side. But his pass completion was, I think, it was eighty. I think that was 87 last season, which given the setup were quite direct, and for a lot of last season they were absolutely terrible. Yep. I think that's a remarkable statistic. But neither of them are at Liverpool, and and that it's it's sort of it feels slightly embarrassing for Liverpool just because of uh, how public their pursuit of both of them was. The fact that you know with Lavia they were offering sort of I will offer thirty six million this week, thirty six million and one, thirty six million and two, and eventually Chelsea got oh, well, they're sixty. And you sort of think they should have got that. If they really wanted them, they should have got that deal done a month ago uh, before Chelsea sort of emerged. So they needed to play in that position. Endo had a very good season in the Bundesliga last season. I think, generally speaking, there's a lot of value in, in Japanese players. I think they're often under underpriced by the market. Uh, whether, whether he can transfer that Bundesliga form to the Premier League, that's always a question. And I think that's a question for... for doesn't matter what position you're in. I think I think that's always a slight doubt. And you know, I remember this is probably an off-record briefing, so I should be careful what I say. A high-profile manager who's managed in both Bundesliga and Premier League saying that he's now wary of signing players from the Bundesliga because he thinks there is such a step up. And Endo has looked good, and so he's he's not expensive, sixteen point two million. Given Liverpool were desperate for a player, it makes sense to bring him in. And then, yeah, if they want to get another one before the end of the window. There's less pressure, so they can be a bit more. Um, it gives them a stronger bargaining hand that they don't have to kind of go in and, and spend 50, 60 million if they don't want to, if they don't think the right player's there. Yeah, I guess that's the thing, isn't it, George? They needed someone in, in that position. And from the bits I've read about, about Endo and brief cameo that he made the other day, I feel like Jurgen Klopp's, they, they had a couple of players last season, Henderson and Fabinho, who he felt like weren't really suited for the way Klopp stereotypically plays football, that the legs had, had kind of gone. Endo will give them the facets of of the game that made the Klopp sides what the Klopp sides were a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think these days, I mean, especially now within the game, how it is and, and the obsession over transfers and players, people can get really caught up in, in one player's status and uh, off the back of you know, a pretty short, small amount of, of games get very obsessed over a player's worth. And, and I think with Moises Caicedo, even though there's clearly an incredibly exciting player there, the whole time throughout the pursuit, it always felt like he was far better suited to playing in a, in a sitting two alongside Enzo rather than playing as the deepest midfielder in a three where Fabinho's role and primary role for Liverpool was effectively to hold his position, to to drop in to that right-hand spot when Trent went forward and to do the same with, with Andy Robertson. It was that proper, genuine defensive midfield role. And that isn't Caicedo's role whatsoever. You know, that would properly be clipping his wings. In Endo, you've got someone who I don't think anyone is going to pretend that he is anywhere near as talented or has, you know, the, the, the capabilities to play football in the same measure as, as someone who's just been transferred for £150 million. But at least in terms of the actual profile of the player they've signed, that they've got what they need. You know, they've got somebody who um, will have no uh, delusions of, of, of what they are able to do on the ball, whose role throughout their career for, for Japan and in club football has been to be that that kind of midfielder who who will sit in and uh, be very tidy on the ball, if not expansive, to look to to, to shift the ball onto more 
um, technically gifted players whilst also just displaying the defensive solidity as well. You know, this is a guy who was noticeably very good um, in the game that Japan had against Croatia in the World Cup um, up against one of the most impressive midfield threes in, in world football who by all accounts is an incredibly popular person behind the scenes and also when you consider the players who are going to be playing around Endo you know when they brought in young players like McAllister and, and Shrobosly having somebody coming in who maybe carries that air of authority that they've lost in Henderson they've lost in, in Fabinho can't be a bad thing either so there's also another side to this where you see some Liverpool fans seeing Caicedo falling over the board and then giving a penalty away and suddenly saying hold on maybe we've dodged a bullet here like there's no denying that that over time Caicedo is going to be an incredibly exciting player but but right now for what Liverpool needs and it also buys them time to spend the next however long to, to bring in the players necessary I think it's a a shrewd signing even if it's not the, the sexiest I almost think fees don't even matter at this point now, they're all, at that, at that top them, level, some of them are so yeah. out there now, anyway, and so so ridiculous. That almost how much someone pays for a player, it doesn't even matter anymore. It's just whether they they're good or not, whether yeah. whether the signing works or not. The still makes a difference bad. whether you're paying 100 million or 16 million. I mean, to the bank balance, but to the but the does, does it to City now? Example. Well, I mean, it, it matters. It, yeah, FFP or profit and sustainability. I think it matters. It, it, I mean. If if that if that matters at all now, I mean, you sort of think Chelsea have already priced in paying a fine. Probably you can say you can look, you can see what Chelsea are trying to do here. It's not not a loophole, but they're trying to manipulate it pretty closely. I would I would say at the moment. But well, I, was... I mean, my, my my concern about yeah, there's been all this sort of excitement about amortization, as if this is a new word people have just invented. It was a new word to me. But but it, it's it's no different to what Leeds were doing in 2003. Hmm. This is they called it securitization. Well, I mean, okay, they were borrowing against future earnings, whereas Chelsea are, are deferring present expenditure. So that's a slight difference. But it's the same thing of kind of like gambling an enormous amount on future success, bringing in the money to pay off what 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 you're racking up now. I mean, the good news is for Chelsea, Leeds went on and, and won the lot on you, completely fired. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely nothing to worry about. Also, there. you might ask ask Derby County fans what they think of amortisation as well. Yeah, yeah, inter- interesting. Let's look a little bit at, at Newcastle then, Jonathan. Horn and Liveramento have, have, have come in. Now, I, I do like Newcastle's trans- transfer strategy, I, I, I've got to say. I think that strengthens them quite quite a lot of the bat now because they've now got two different options at fullback to to Trippier and Byrne but also if they need to change things around at centre-back it means that Byrne can, can move inside what have you made of the, of the Lewis Hall signing are you, are you surprised Chelsea are willing to to basically loan him I know he's, he'll probably end up going there permanently but to, to give him to Newcastle who you think surely you're with them looking at, to aim with them for top four in terms of talent it's disappointing uh, for Chelsea, I mean, I, I I saw Lewis. I think it was his debut in the cup against Chesterfield. I happened to be be there, and he was he was excellent that day. You know, I mean, it's Chesterfield, but he he noticeably, yeah. As a journalist, you trot along to these Premier League teams against smaller clubs, thinking, "What am I going to write about?" And you know, maybe there's a shock, which obviously gives you something to write about. But Chelsea won that game. I think I think it was five one in the end, and it was like, "Oh God, what, what do I write about here?" But Lewis Hall gave you something to write about because he was obviously so gifted. And I've been a little bit disappointed that he hasn't made more of an impression since that, because that would have been, what, a year gone, year gone January? They have Kukurea, they have uh, 
Chilwell. So it's, it's not like the short of options there. They've played Raheem Sterling as a left wing back. So yeah, they, they, they do have had options. Matson still, um, isn't it? Yeah, if you if you were a Chelsea fan, you you want to see players come through your academy and get into the first team and have that sort of core of players you you've created yourself. You sort of feel they have a a greater sort of affinity to the to the club, have a sense of the DNA of the club. However, I totally get from a FFP point of view, if, if they end up getting, I think the fee they're talking about is 25 to 30, depending on yeah. exactly how many games he plays. It'll be a your loan with an obligation to buy, but the fee will be set by how, how often he plays this season. So I, I get that they they need those those players who come from the academy who, who give them pure profit. It's, it's not, they haven't already amortized part of the fee. Um, so yeah, financially, I, I get it. It's been the direction of travel since Bowley arrived that academy products get sold on. Uh, but and you're right; it's a risk to, to sell him to Newcastle when he he looks as talented as he does. And Newcastle, Newcastle, I think you know if you look at that squad, um, where they haven't haven't gone berserk with signings, you'd say the area where they they were short was probably at left back. And I still think maybe the back of midfield. I, I'm not convinced that Gimarish. You want him as your long-term holding midfielder. I think you probably want somebody a bit more defensive alongside him to, to release him a bit. But yeah, Dan Byrne, for all for all he's a cult figure, for all all his effort, for all he's he's played very well for last year. He's you know, he, he's not a classy player in the way that Hall is, or in the way that you probably want your fullbacks to be. So it it, it gives them a greater freedom if they have Hall there. Uh, the other thing with, with both Hall and Livermore is they could both play in midfield. Yeah, they can both play further forward. So again, it gives you different options. It maybe means you can go and play with wing backs. Um, but if you're playing as a team that has a very, if you're, you know, if you're Newcastle, you're playing as a team with a very effective, aggressive fullback, then you can stick Hall or Livermento against them, and you get that defensive quality. But you've also still got players you can cross the ball, players you can get forward. So I think in terms of squad building, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I actually think what I've seen of him. Between twenty five and thirty million in the modern market's not a bad, not a bad value at all for them. I think Newcastle squad building, George, is very interesting. It's almost like you've got that succession plan now. So you've got the experienced heads who've been playing right back and left back in, in Trippier and Burn, but you've now got two that are going to going to back them up and still play plenty of football. Who are who are who are young players? So Newcastle in general, if you look at what they've done since the new ownership came in. I think their transfer strategy has not been what people would have expected to be. I actually like the way they're doing things. Now that they are one of the best teams in the country and they've got Champions League football, the amount of games and, you know, are likely to go further in the Cups, the amount of games they're going to play season on season is is, is vastly increased. The amount of minutes they have to play is vastly increased. So there's an, a necessity here to bring in depth to the squad anyway, just to be able to deal with the, the Champions League campaign that they're going to have. Um, the fact that they've been able to do so and bring in players who are a Premier League quality now, but also of an age where they probably wouldn't necessarily be suited to coming into Newcastle and playing week in, week out. It's brilliant because it means that they can be eased into the side. In Trippier and Burn, they've got two guys who have, have played very well and consistently for, for them for the last you know season or two. I think Trippier's signing at Newcastle was, was basically a bit of a watershed moment in terms of their progression as a football club. So really smart signings, signings that enables how to make changes. You know, these days at top level football, fullbacks can often become the most important attacking threats on the pitch as well. We've seen that certainly with Trippier at Newcastle, but these two do provide a different kind of athleticism and quality in the final third as well. Really exciting signings. And um, it, it does feel like whoever is spending well we know who's spending the money at Newcastle and we know that he's got a pretty good track record of of signing um good young talent and um 
it's ominous, I think, for, for the rest of the league or, or for those who are trying to keep pace, at least for Manchester City, that I think Newcastle aren't going to be going anywhere. It's the variety as well, in different types of mm. a, a fullback. I think that's that's the bit that makes it even more interesting as well. We're going to flash up the who scored combined 11 now of Newcastle and Liverpool. Jonathan, who would you say at the moment is is better set squad-wise, Newcastle or Liverpool? I'd say probably Newcastle at the, at the moment. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, there's not much between them, I don't think. Um, I think, I mean, Liverpool are 13 unbeaten now, uh, which which possibly slightly goes under the radar because they had such a poor yeah, start fair. last season. Yeah, the game at Chelsea, they they you know they were the better side the first half hour, the last hour, Chelsea were the better side. I, I, there was obvious holes there. They struggled a bit against Bournemouth. I mean, I suppose in the end they win three one. Haven't played the last half hour with ten men, so it's yeah they didn't struggle that much. Uh, but that first half, I, I think they found difficult. So I, I, I sort of feel they're they're not quite right yet this season. Uh, whereas Newcastle, I don't know. I mean, like that Villa game. It's such an odd game. I, I was sort of, we don't, we don't. I was really heartened by what Alex Ferguson said the following day. Did you see that the Ferguson yeah, came out and said, "What a goal!" I thought they played quite well. They were a bit unlucky, and like watching it, that that was sort of how I felt. Not, not that they were unlucky. That, that's not the right phrase. But the one-one, they were totally in the game. Then you have a Mings injury, and suddenly everything falls apart. They keep playing that high line. Pau Torres didn't look as if he quite grasped his positional role at that stage. And then every goal was exactly the same. Every chance was exactly the same. Just pop it in the space behind this sort of rickety back four that wasn't in line at all. No pressure on the ball. Run through and score. And Newcastle will, you know, if you give them space behind your, your, your defensive line and there's no pressure on the ball, they will kill you like that because they have so many quick, powerful players. So you could you could see the ruthlessness of Newcastle. You could see that here is a thing that you must not do against Newcastle because they will punish you for it. And Villa kept doing it again and again. So I, I sort of... Yeah, yes, it was 5-1, and it probably did in the end. That was reflective of the game. But I don't think it was reflective of the quality of the teams. And then I think you saw that with the second games of the season. That Newcastle were really, I thought, disappointing against City last Saturday night. They, they felt very flat in that game, almost as if they were slightly intimidated. And they, yeah, they had a couple of half chances on the break in the second half, but the, that was all. Uh, I suppose from their point of view, you'd say they, they sort of restricted City, that the goal was you know, a, a, a strike of exceptional quality. Um, and, and Villa is almost the exact opposite to what happened against Newcastle. That they, they suddenly play against a team who's just making mistake after mistake and handing them goals all over the place uh, in, in Everton. So, yeah, Newcastle, um, they looked exceptional against Villa. They looked pretty flat against City. Uh, but they've got quite a hard start to the season, haven't they? It's, it's, yeah. um, it could easily be that they, sort of by the end of October, they don't look in a great place, but actually they're, you know, they're fine. They just had a lot of hard fixtures. Yeah, they got Brighton away. I suppose they got Brentford, Sheffield United, Burnley, which isn't isn't that tricky. But they suddenly get a run of Arsenal, Chelsea and United in the space of four games and Tottenham two games after that, uh, beginning of December. So, uh, yeah, it's not the easiest start for them. No, but I guess, George, this game, Newcastle v Liverpool, thinking back to that Villa game at St James's Park, the way Liverpool sets up and the way they defend, they play a high line, you expect there to be gaps. If Newcastle play like they did against Villa, you'd expect them to exploit those things. Yeah, you would. It'll be interesting to see how they how they set up for this. Um, you know, it's also interesting to note that um, Newcastle are the bookmakers' favourites to win this game, and I I wonder when the last time Newcastle were favourites to beat Liverpool at home, uh, and that in itself tells a story about where both these sides are right now. Um, do Newcastle come into this game with the same mentality that they did against Villa, where they look to immediately play on the front foot? 
and um, expose the the high line of of Aston Villa, or do they maybe approach it more in a more similar way to, to the City game, where they they give the opponents a bit more respect? We know that their success last season was mainly built on a very strong defensive record, and they look to to basically defend first, um, keep the scoreline down, and see if they can nick something on the counter. It'll be interesting to see what Eddie Howe does. It'll show maybe where he believes they are, and, and if they still have a not an inferiority complex, but if they still go into this game seeing themselves as the likely winners, um, I've got a feeling it it won't be quite as crazy as that as that Villa game was, where it kind of felt like a basketball game for for most of it. Both teams just kind of flying forward and uh, wherever possible. So I do think Newcastle will cause them problems. I think it's understandable that they are favourites to win the game as well, um, but. I wouldn't be banking on there being plenty of, of, of well, certainly not as much as there was an opening day. I, I think Eddie Howe will set them up to to deal with the threats of you know, Salah, Luis Diaz started the season so well, Jota, Gakpo, Nunes, you know, you can't, I know Danny don't want to hear it, but it's not quite the same as the uh, as the Villa um, front line. So, um, yeah, they've got to probably be a bit more def- defensively responsible. An outrageous thing to say. <laughs> not, having, not having that at all. Let's get some some score predictions. Then I'm going to go completely against what you've just said, George, with my prediction. I'm going to say 3-1 to Newcastle. George? I'm going to say 2-1 Newcastle. 2-1. Now, Jonathan, I guess you're sharing predictions now with, with Sam through, through the season by the, by the looks of things. What's your prediction? I don't even know oh, how we, we did, did on we did. predictions last week. We didn't do any predictions first week of the season. So. Yeah, we forgot we're starting from starting from last week we're starting from last week if i looked at what i've written down against the real uh, t- 10 uh, 30 points that first week <laughs> it doesn't you just have to take my word for it you quite often uh, got full full marks when we used to keep track of it every week <laughs> i'm really looking forward to see what happens uh alexander arnold against anthony gordon i think that's a really interesting battle yeah. and how alexander arnold plays against him gordon started the season so well um his directness i think could really cause problems down that side so yeah i think 2-1 newcastle 2-1 to newcastle right then let's look at brighton against west ham and my word i've watched both brighton's games so so far this season live and just like a cheat code it's like they sell players and then they just up everyone else's scores that, that's still there like a computer game cheat i don't understand what, what they're doing and how they, they are so good they, again, again, well, just ripped Wolves. I mean, Wolves were no great shakes, by the way. But George, they just ripped them apart at the, the weekend, and they're just amazing. They've got Stupinian and Matoma down that left hand side. That's as, as good a left hand side as you'll you'll see in the league. I watched them, and I think Danny Welbeck's still leading the line there. But he just enable seems to enable everyone else to to be free and pop up and and get goals. Solly March, who we're going to come on to, they're just such an amazing team. They're an unbelievable team, and you know they are basically in themselves a case study of of why you know coaching and smart recruitment are probably more important than just individuals and, and key players. Where a player like you know Caicedo comes in and uh, is kind of goes through the system in about a year's in about a year was a massive player for the money played moves on and, and they don't really seem to miss him. You know the fact that they've lost two players um, whose combined value is near enough 200 million and him and McAllister from their midfield and yet it doesn't seem to impact the way they play when they've got Milner playing <laughs> in there as well. It's it's just unbelievable what they do. Um, they are, it just feels so far ahead of the curve in terms of, of understanding what it takes in order to be a successful and coherent football team. Um, and even when you consider that they lost Graham Potter, who was such a great manager for them and, and had a succession plan in place to bring in Deserver, who's taken them to a whole different stratosphere. Like, it is incredible. And, you know, I, I basically after those first two games of the season, and also considering how consistently good they were at the back end of last season, I, I'm sitting here now wondering why 
they can't be someone who challenges Manchester City. Like I, I don't see why not. Like their performance, their, the level of their performance consistently is, is so incredibly high. They're able to exert just total dominance on, on some of the poorer teams in the division, and that, in, in my mind, is kind of the marker for for what it takes to be a title winner. When you consider the Manchester City. Um, for various reasons, you know, the season hasn't started great. They've lost their the best player in the league over the past decade and Kevin De Bruyne out for injury for a couple of months. Pep Guardiola won't be in the, on the touchline for the next few weeks having a back surgery. The performances against Newcastle and, and Sevilla, haven't been, even Burnley, haven't really been that great. It kind of feels set up to me for, for you know, you'd expect it to be in Arsenal, a Liverpool, possibly even in Newcastle. But, uh, you know, if if Brighton can continue the way they are, and, and I think injuries will play a big part. This is outrageous from you, it's, not, it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Why, why, why is it outrageous? I don't understand. The title. Why? They're because they're just not. I just don't. But that, believe. But that, but the, I can challenge the top four. I completely. I would agree with you on that. But but I, I, I just, I just I don't, don't understand why why there would be why the perception of this team is that there's a ceiling right now. I, I, I don't get it. When like when you, we have year-on-year year progress and, and the market... I, I'm not sitting here. This is going to be the same as me and you and Odson Edvard next last season. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here saying that I think Brighton are going to win the league, right? Okay. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. I, right. I'm just saying that there is a perception here that there is a ceiling and, and I don't really see why that is. When you consider that Newcastle last season went from being miles off the pace of finishing in the top four. And when you consider that the consistency of, of Brighton's performance level under De Zerbe has been so high, and they've got to be question marks over the team at the top of the, who, who won the league last season, um, I think they are easily one of the best teams in the league. And, it, and if, because they don't have the, the squad depth that others will have, um, I, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to challenge right there at the top if, if it is going to be a more open renewal. And my issue with what you're saying is I completely disagree with what you're saying about Man City because <laughs> I think they're just so efficient now and so well oiled. I think they they probably concede around 15 goals this season and just win games one nil, two nil. And in that case, you know they don't get near them. Uh, but that, but that's yeah, kind of the that's what I think. I that's my personal opinion of of what I think is going to happen. Jonathan, mm-hmm. did you ever envisage being sat on a, on a on a podcast where a team containing Jason Steele as the number one goalkeeper and Danny Welbeck <laughs> as the leading forward were being touted as title challengers by by a pundit? <laughs> Uh, no, no, I didn't. No. And you watched? I don't know. I, I only found out what a podcast to be fair, was three I... years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, I, I wouldn't have thought I'd be saying that one either. So, no. But that you know, Jason Steele, for example, really, really good for Brighton. Mm. In his Absolutely career, terrible for Sunderland. Yeah. EFL journeyman was wasn't he? Not really. Never really. He wasn't even that good. Anyway. <laughs> now, now he's like playing yeah. as number one for one of the best teams in the league. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's what George said right at the start. There, it, it it's so much of football is about coaching. And about getting the system right and buying the right players for the system. People have gone, I, I don't know, the, the obsession with transfers, I just find, and the obsession with individuals, I think is really, it's really dispiriting. It's really, it's just a misunderstanding of what football is. That, look, you, you, of course, some players are better than other players, but for a huge sort of swathe of players, they're all much of a muchness. And whether they look really good or look quite average, depends on the system they're playing in, how comfortable they are, the players around them, and and working out. And it's really difficult to work out who will fit together. You're working out all those the, the different contingencies around that as to whether that player will fit in. Brighton seemed to be not just the best in the league at the moment, possibly the best there's ever been at doing that. Yeah, I'd go along with that. Um, and I, I, what, I, what I really like about them is we sort of gotten, oh, I sort of got into my head that, yeah, they, they go out to uh, you know, South America, Latin America, 
Uh, and they, they're really good at finding 18, 19-year-old Latin Americans. So they bring in Caicedo, they bring in Enciso, uh, they bring in Estupinian. You think, okay, it, it's it's plausible. They've got good scouting out there. That's how it works. What I like about this season is they're going, well, yeah, we probably could do that. But actually, we're going to bring in a 37-year-old. And we're, we're going to bring in Mamie Dahoud from, from Bussy Dortmund. We're going to we're going to slightly change it. We, we're, we're so far ahead of you. We're already starting to, to evolve. Uh, we're going to bring in a bit more experience. And, and I, I think the, the level of intelligence behind that is remarkable. I, I, I suspect that their squad is, is too thin to, to keep it going, uh, to, to be able to challenge for the title. But I don't really... I mean, it, it slightly depends how they react to being in Europe. But assuming that that goes okay... I don't see why they can't be top four. No, no, I'll go along with that. I, I definitely, definitely um, agree with I don't that. think they will be, but I, I don't see why no. they can't be. I, uh, my other slight caveat, and I thought this both games, both Luton and Wolves, they do still concede a lot of chances. And if they're conceding chances against Luton and Wolves, there will be other games where, even if they have 25 chances, the opposition has 10, where they end up losing that game 2-0. And we're yeah. sort of going, ah, oh, they're really open. That used to that, be, that, bro. That, no, didn't it? The ones missing the chances and they, mm. they don't miss now. That's true. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, um, does. Well, still misses. But Ian, he's, a na- <laughs> he's, an, he's an enabler, isn't he? I'm, I'm bringing Evan Ferguson on, who I think is probably going to be a hundred million pound player. But that's so, what you, you know. When you talk about about Welbeck and Steele, like it, it wouldn't be a massive surprise. I know that uh, Welbeck's starting ahead of Steele now and is playing okay. Sorry, starting ahead of um, Ferguson now and playing okay. I'd probably put Welbeck in goal and be okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the fact the, the fact remains that surely. Uh, some point fairly soon it's going to be Ferguson leading the line consistently and um yeah I mean he and he's someone who will be the next to move on for you know 100 million plus they're making such profits now yeah yeah, yeah. they made what, what was the figure like 300 million pound profit on player sales mm. over the last two years in, you know, as you say probably another 100 120 million for Ferguson in a year or two well suddenly they actually can start competing for 50 60 70 80 million pound players they don't need to because they'll find some Paraguayan 17 year old to do the job just as well but if they want to, they can start hitting the higher end of the market. And that's when I still don't I still think they're a mile off City. And probably for financial reasons, it'd be really hard for them to catch Newcastle. But they're not that far off, say, Liverpool. They're certainly not that far off, off Chelsea as they are at the minute. I mean, I know they finished, what, six places ahead of Chelsea last season. So I guess that's already been proved. There's no reason why, that, why they, they can't sort of, for a while, consistently challenge. The problem is they are, if they can carry on this sort of selling model, and we've seen this before. We saw, I don't know, like Kievo in Italy did something similar, maybe not quite to the same extremes. They do get to a point where it only takes one bad summer, a summer where they, they buy three players that don't settle down, they don't fit in, and and they don't manage to sell a player. And suddenly they, they fall back into the pack. And that's the problem they've got. They don't have the safety net that a City has or a Chelsea have or a, even as you know, a Manchester United have. But at the moment, there's no reason why they can't get in the Champions League. De Zerbi is, is going to be the most sought-after young manager in European football now. And and every time a big job comes up, especially in the Premier League, he's going to be the one who's going to be touted for it. So keeping hold of him is going to be very tough, um, which doesn't help. But, you know, I I always think people are... And I'm looking at you here, Dan, saying it's outrageous. But like p- people talk about things... Um, as if they, as if in sport we don't often see things surprising. It's like in my mind, if you say a team is fully capable of, of finishing within the top four, then football is random enough for that inherently to mean that they could challenge for the title. Like the, the gap isn't that big. As we say, if City do maintain their, their current level and they don't 
drop off at all, then it's going to be impossible for anyone to probably challenge them. But if we sat here 12 months ago and I said to you, I think Arsenal are going to win the league, you'd have, you'd have laughed at my mm. face as well. But look what happened Fair. a few months later, you know, they were there. Yeah. So um, I don't think they will, but I also don't think... It, it feels to me like the, the general perception is that this is a bit of a flash in the pan with Brighton, and, and I, I don't no. think it is. No, it's, it's, it's a great chat, isn't it? Great podcasting for, 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 for the team. Yeah, you, <laughs> you both hit some, some some really great points. I think the point about Thanks coaching much. and building a team is is really important because we've seen players leave Brighton and not be as good. They've gone for big fees, but they haven't been as good at the new clubs they go to. So it shows you how much goes into the coaching and the setup. I mean, of, imagine of, if of, that of, performance on Sunday is Caicedo's actual level. Well, that's what I was thinking. Because <laughs> look at Kukurea. He's been awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really awful. Yeah, yeah. But also, but that, that is, that's a point in itself. And, and I think we spoke about this last week. But um, with Bournemouth and Brentford, there, there is a, a clear reason why. Like, There's a clear history of players that they sell not doing particularly well when they move on to their next club for, for various reasons. And, and part of that is because because they are such a well-run machine, these teams, it gets like the very, very most yeah. out of these players. And they play systems that can elevate them to probably beyond their natural level. And then they go to a new team and they're expected to fit into where someone else played yeah, and, and they're asked to play a different role. Um, it was and a great point, is, apart from you said Bournemouth instead of Brighton, but other, other than that, it was... Well, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's Bournemouth next. I was uh, scratching around looking for a subject for my column this week. Maybe this is what I'll do. I think it's quite a good maybe idea. There are teams where players leave and go terrible. Like Brighton looked like that now. But if you look back, the team that always stands out to me where that kept on happening was Clough's Forest in the late 70s, not, not the later Clough's Forest. But you look how many players... Look at what happened to Gary Bertles when he went to Manchester United. Yeah, and it just kept happening. The, the, the system there worked so well. And, and actually, maybe, maybe, I mean, obviously, you know, pressing is different, data is different. But in terms of team building, maybe what Clough and Taylor had at Forest is the, the closest to what you're seeing at Brighton, where they, they sign a player who doesn't seem to make any sense. Why, why, are you, why, are you, why are you insisting on playing the old, slow John Robertson? Oh, it turns out he's the best left winger in Europe. It's just he has to play in that system with you know, Frank Clark or Frank Gray behind him. Why have you signed John McGovern, this sort of slow, slightly ponderous midfielder? Oh, because he lets Martin O'Neill or Archie Gemmell or, or whoever play. So, so maybe maybe there is a lineage there from, from Clough to Deserby. <laughs> I mean, we've got lost in a complete Brighton wormhole here, so we haven't got time to talk about, about West Ham. I am going to talk about the second topic that we were going to talk about with Brighton. You know, we talk about going and, and finding players from South America. Though. They find players from, from within. Solly March couldn't hit a barn door before Deserby came in, and now, according to who scored, since the World Cup, he's the highest-rated player in the Premier League, and he just has picked up exactly where he left off last season, George. But this is like a case in point of, of what good coaching and good management can do you know I think if Swally March had been playing for a club that wasn't quite as progressive he, he probably wouldn't have had necessarily a Premier, Premier League career let alone what he's been doing in the last um, couple yeah. of seasons um, you know it's it's probably not sustainable he's 29 years old but he is someone who has clearly um, brought into well firstly brought into to what Graham Potter was doing at the club and now under Roberto De Zerbi is just a consistent threat. He gets into amazing goal scoring positions from like, every area. Like we often see him um getting on the ball on the edge of the box, having long shots. He's also both his goals from the weekend came um basically like centre forward goals, even though he's playing right on the right hand side. Again, I have very little doubt that if 
someone was foolish enough to go out and spend fifty million pounds on Solly Marsh right now, he probably wouldn't be the same player if, if, no. if he moved on. You um, know what though? Because people will say, oh, "What does he have to do to get in the England squad?" It just, just wouldn't work. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be the same. Solly Marsh playing for England would not be the same player that plays for Brighton. But yeah. see, this this is exactly the the the, the, the point uh, about it not really being about individuals, it being about systems. This idea of, you, you know, you, you put together six months of good performances in the Premier League. Oh, yeah. Why is he, why is he not got an England cap? Well, because it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a Blue Peter badge. It's not an award for being good in the Premier League. Yeah, the England team is a sort of squad and club in itself. And it's not like England don't have loads of talent in attacking wide areas. You know, are you going to pick him ahead of Saka? The way sometimes football is looked at is the fact that the Foden good. now is starting to play on you know, on the right cutting in, like so you got Saka and Foden there ahead of him. You got Grealish on the other side. Does he get in ahead of any of them? Well, probably no, not. No, yeah. but this is also uh, like he's. I mean, he's obviously on form. He's playing much better than say Jaden Sancho. So maybe there isn't than everyone there. in the league according to who scored, Jonathan. He's the best Sorry? player. He's playing, <laughs> playing better than everyone in the league. 7.82. Since, since <laughs> well, you can't argue with 7.82. No, uh, you can't. <laughs> but yeah, like maybe, maybe you do start to look to bring him into 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 squads, but no. you, you can't be thinking of him as, as sort of a regular first choice. I mean, Saka is, unless something goes horribly wrong, Saka is the first choice on the right for England for, for the next 10 years, right? I mean, yeah. and that's not Solly March's fault. It's, it's not nothing against Solly March. But it it's just work. a sack of his much younger and brilliant. Yeah. The way yeah. England play wouldn't suit Sonny March, but the way Brighton play just seems to suit. I mean, I'm pretty convinced there's three could play as a midfield three at Brighton, and somehow we'd be the best midfield <laughs> in, 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 in the world. <laughs> you two, uh, the little formation we've got here, you two sitting, and me playing as a creative number 10. I think. I think, what, I think what if Deserby gets the job at England after the uh, after the Euros? Oh, they Yeah, pick, pick anyone. Jason Sterling goal. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be absolutely unbelievable seeing when Deserby manages England. Right, we've run. We've ran away with the, the Brighton top there. We're supposed to be doing team in focus Brentford. We've we've already done team in focus Brighton, but it was an enjoyable chat. I, I enjoyed it. Let's get some some score predictions then. Brighton against West Ham. Jonathan, I'll come to you first. Two one Brighton. Two one Brighton. George. Three 0 Brighton. That's exactly what I was going to go for. Three 0 to Brighton. Right then, as I've teased, team in focus Brentford without Ivan Tony and. People, it's not the topic here is oh they, they weren't going to be the same team without Ivan Tony Jonathan. I actually thought they'll just continue to be a good team because like a bit like Brighton, they've just got a good setup and a, and a good manager and players who've improved season upon season. You look at Embuemo and, and Visa, they've been steadily improved. This is their third season in the Premier League now. Every year. They get better. They get more productive, mm-hmm. and it, that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, look, Tony was the third top scorer in the league last season. The way he plays is, is different to both Wissam and Buemo. That the, they both, yeah, they they're both quick. They want the ball in front of them. He's very good. At, Tony's very good at taking the ball into his chest, sort of holding it up. They don't have that sort of play now. They have had to change slightly how they've played. I think they they can't be quite as direct. They can't lock the ball long to a centre forward anymore. They, they've, they've got to sort of work it slightly and try and. Uh, fine space for uh, Wissam and Buemo to, to to run into, but they've done it really well so far. Yeah, we saw even the end of last season, the the two of them work well as a pairing, and it, that's that's carried on the start of this season. So uh, you can't you can't deny Tony as a loss, but but equally, I don't think we should be too surprised that they seem to be finding a way to to work around that. 
know, the clever recruiters as well, George, as, as we know, many players that you'll have watched in the AFL who are site, they just seem to improve season upon season because they're given room to grow. At Brentford, actually, if you look at the stats, I mean, it's a smaller sample size, obviously, without Tony starting, but they do score more goals. And they do win more points when he's not there, which feels bizarre. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think this probably has something to do with, with Brentford being a, a generally progressive club. I, I think a lot of the things I'm not going to going to uh, pour everyone with it, but a lot of the things we just said about about Brighton in terms of success and planning and, and certain players stepping up when others come out and the rest of it, it all applies to Brentford as well. You know, I think Johan Visa is the player now who, where if Tony hadn't. Um, been in receipt of his ban, Visa would still be playing a peripheral role. Yeah, he now looks like he is very much the, the Premier League player. Um, Brian and Bomo has scored five out of five penalties. I really like him, really he's like a, him. He's a, he's a brilliant player and, and he's someone who had to kind of be shunned onto the periphery a little bit um, to, to kind of play a role that would, that would aid Ivan Tony. Now he's he's kind of the main man and, and is thriving within that. Um, I've got no doubt that when Tony comes back, I think in January, um, he will return to a side and, and they'll continue, you know, their roles might be changed a bit, but Tony will, will continue to be a massive player for them. Um, again, they're just a, a, a team who know what they're doing. And Thomas Frank, they've got a a brilliant manager, a really good tactician, um, somebody who's so adept at setting up a, a side to be incredibly solid defensively. You know, Sam spoke about this last week, like Brentford are, they're not a long ball team, they're not a direct team, but they are definitely an outlier in terms of the way they approach Premier League games of football where they're very, very happy out of possession. They're very happy in a low block. Similarly, their their centre-backs are are, are very capable on the ball if that's needed, but they're devastating on the counter-attack. And there aren't many teams in the Premier League that set up to play that way now, which means that they can basically go into any game and not have to compete with the opposition to play the the way they want to, but they can just sit off and say, fine, you have it and we'll we'll do what we do best. They are very good in in Visa and and Boma. They've got two players who are in, in great form. Because of Brighton, Jonathan, actually Brentford and Thomas Frank because of Deserbe. If it wasn't for Brighton, we'd probably all be talking about Brentford in a similar way that, that we talk about Brighton, wouldn't we? I think there's something in that, definitely. But I, I still think people talk about Brentford quite a lot. I mean, I, I, feel I, like I they think... completely go under the radar because they're just an established top 10 Premier League team now. I think. Well, okay. I mean, maybe that's starting because this is their third season. So, so maybe we have started to sort of take it slightly for granted. But whenever Brentford play a top six side, you always sort of think, yeah. They, 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 they might, it's worth watching. They might do something here. Yeah, um, it, it, it's almost a, a, a sort of testament to how well they have done that, that we've stopped thinking of it as being slightly freakish or weird that they're, they're that good and that they do keep challenging sides and they do look a sort of upper mid-table team. I mean, Thomas Frank was in the conversation for the, for the Tottenham job. Uh, so it's not that he's been overlooked particularly. I'm, I'm not sure whether Tottenham fans would really have warmed to that, but yeah, I mean, the job he's done is, is remarkable. So yeah. I remember people, a few people like, felt like it was being scoffed at that Tottenham had drawn their first game away at Brentford. I thought, that's an unbelievable result on the first day of the season because Brentford's mm. a really, really tough place. Well, to especially go. when you lose your main centre-back to concussion before yeah. half-time. I mean, well, That's an excellent yeah, that, point. Yeah. yeah. Whenever anyone goes there, if you get a point at Brentford, I think you'd come away, come away happy. They picked up a lot of scalps at at their, their stadium at, at home, Brentford. I think they're a, they're a, re, they're a really good team. What, what's their seeding then, George? Obviously, Brighton are challenging for the title. What's what's Brentford's seeding? I'm not going to advocate uh, advocate them for the title at this stage. But they're, no. you know, they're another one, I think, because of the way they play. I, I think that's almost the, the most impressive thing um, with, with Brighton is that they are 
approaching games as a you know a, a, an elite side would, and they are outplaying teams like that. I think it, it's more difficult to bridge the gap if you're going to play the way that, that Brentford do to to be kind of really top level, unless you had the the players to do that. I mean, it's interesting. Literally, as we're speaking right now, Fabrizio Romano has, has tweeted that the Brentford are about to sign. Uh, Nico Gonzalez for for forty million um, euros, which in itself, I guess, is a, is an indication of where Brentford are, where, where they are a side who've always been incredibly shrewd in the transfer market, but they are starting to bridge that gap now. They are now yeah, able to make some sensational profits over the years, mainly off Aston Villa in the Championship. I mean, the fact they're spending forty million euros on a player shows that they are now kind of sitting at the top table, I guess. And given how strong their recruitment record is, if they're going to start writing checks for that much, then that's going to be going to enable them to bring in a, a new quality of player and given how progressive and how good they already are um, with what is still a very young squad. And now, you know, they're another team we spoke about Brighton shopping in different um, different uh, areas now and, and bringing in Milner. You know, it's easy to forget that they went and plucked Ben Mee out of Burnley. Nice went, 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 brilliant signing, you know, and that's it. it. It's not the case. I think there's a bit of a misconception about both Brentford and Brighton that they just go out and sign young players. You know, they, they just are able to find value in basically every market, whether it's a veterans market, whether it's free transfers, whatever. So, yeah, I, I, I think they're a bit behind Brighton right now in terms of, of where they are in the um, in their journey. Um, but Matthew Benham is, is no less ambitious than Tony Bloom and no less smart. So it would be impossible to sit here now and say they, they, they weren't capable of, of going further. They also sign players and then don't have to use them because the players that they've already got there just just do so well and do improve season upon season. You think mm. of Lewis Potter. I know I know he's had injuries. Damsgaard, they're probably not in the in the first eleven, and probably with Gonzalez, you know, he plays in Embraer's position. So is he is he even going to come in and and be a starter? I suppose they could play him as a as a number ten behind Visa and and, and Embraer. Mm. But you know, they, they sign players and then don't really need to use them because what they've got is is so efficient and does so well. Already, another, another good chat. This is a the football connoisseurs podcast today. I've really, really enjoyed <laughs> about Brighton and Brentford in in the way that we have. We're going to rattle through the predictions for the rest of the games. Then this Premier League weekend game week three, of course. So we'll start with Chelsea v Luton. George, um, three nil, two nil to Chelsea, and I'm going to go one nil to Chelsea. I think they, they may struggle to break them down. Bournemouth against Tottenham Saturday lunchtime. Jonathan, two one to Spurs. Same for me. 2-1 to Spurs, George. 2-2. Two, two. Right, then Arsenal-Fulham. I'm going to say 3-1 to Arsenal, George. 2-0. Also 2-0 to Arsenal. 2-0 to the Arsenal. Brentford v Palace, George. 1-0 to Brentford. Uh, yeah, also 1-0 to Brentford. I'm going to go 1-1 one, one for, for that one. Everton v Wolves, Jonathan. Everton to win 1-0. Nil. Nil, nil. Yeah, both are, are, are pretty porous. <laughs> I'm going to go 1 0 Wolves. I'm going to go 1 0 Wolves. Everton looked absolutely disastrous against Villa on, on Sunday. Manchester United against Forest. I'm going to go for 2 1 to Manchester United. Jonathan? Uh, 2 0 to United. Oh, I mean, they've looked so poor, but I think they get over the line here. 1 0. Big one on Sunday. It's Burnley against Villa, George. 1 0. 1 0. I'm going to go 2 1 to Villa, even though sure. I'm, I'm going. So that. Limits the chances of winning automatically. <laughs> Jonathan? One all. One all. And then finally, because we've done Newcastle against Liverpool, Sheffield United against Man City, Jonathan? Sheffield United nil. Uh, City two. One nil City. One nil to City. I'm going to go nil four. Manchester City. Yeah. 
There's some varying predictions there. So mm. if anyone from her score is actually watching this, I don't know whether they actually know. <laughs> I assume they do. Can we please start getting a, getting a league table together? I believe that's falling on Dan, Dan Worth's uh, desk. So Dan Worth, if you could get the league table started up, that would be absolutely brilliant. We will, of course, be back next week to preview game week four, but hopefully you've enjoyed this preview. I think we had some new subscribers and some new watchers last week, so that was very much appreciated. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. It will be every week through the Premier League season. So nothing left for me to say other than subscribe with your post notifications on, give the video a like and a comment, and tell all your friends and family about the podcast. <laughs>